Hello and welcome to Retro Game Audio. My name is Patrick. And I'm Steve. And uh, what are we talking about today, Steve? Well, uh, today, actually, finally, we are discussing the Famicom Disk System, uh, a peripheral device for the Nintendo Famicom, which was recently just had its 30th anniversary a few weeks ago, yeah. 86. Um, it's a floppy disk drive system that attached, kind of an attachment for the Famicom, allowing it to run floppy disks instead of just car- cartridges. Uh, that's right. Uh, some of the classic NES games we're familiar with were actually first released on disc instead of cartridge uh, in Japan. And what makes the Famicom disc system uh, of interest to this podcast is uh, how it offered sound expansion for the Famicom. <clears throat> so as we've discussed in previous episodes, and just kind of a refresher, the NES slash Famicom offered five channels of sound. That would be two pulse wave channels, a triangle wave, a noise channel, and a sample channel. Uh, the Famicom disc system uh, which we'll refer to as the FDS, people call it the FDS, added a sixth channel of sound that used wavetable synthesis. And we'll go into a deeper explanation of how its audio uh, works later in this episode, but you can think of it as like a free space to draw larger waveforms that have a higher quality sound to them. So instead of having to have something like a set square wave, uh, you could draw a sine wave, a sawtooth wave, or even just like any crazy random shape you want to cram in there. It doesn't have to be like any nice pattern at all. And uh, these waveforms could also be modulated in weird ways uh, to take those cleaner sounds and make sort of dirtier sound effects with them too. And so with the original versions of some popular NES games being found on the Famicom Disk System, this provides a few examples of familiar music with different arrangements. Uh, so to get started, let's take a listen to the original theme for Zelda. And here's the version most listeners are probably familiar with, uh, the NES version without that extra channel. Having that extra voice doesn't only give the original version a distinct sound quality that the NES couldn't produce, it also affected the arrangement of the song itself. Yeah, you can uh, hear it in that sort of counterpoint melody, uh, or whatever you call it, uh, the square wave channel part that goes like this. So in that original version you just heard, that voice gets to keep doing what it's doing uh, uninterrupted due to having that extra channel that takes the lead. 
Without the sound expansion available for the cartridge version of Zelda that we played, that scene part is interrupted to fit some of the melodic leads in there. Uh, let's give that a listen. Yeah, and as you hear, it gets a section where it drops out, where the part drops out entirely. Um, but in the FTS version, it gets to play throughout the entire track. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting to hear like the differences, like because we're so used to that version. But once you go back and listen to the original and compare the two, you're kind of like, oh yeah, you can hear like how it's missing this part. And uh, I think it's just cool cool to hear the original version. No, it is, and I think that that's it's kind of. Uh... It's, it's interesting in that we do, you know, when you hear the original versions of these things um, and it's fuller, it's a lot fuller than uh, I remember it as being a kid. I, I remember looking it up on YouTube, like, I guess years ago, mm-hmm. uh, when I didn't know about expansion audio and stuff. And I was like, was, did it really sound like that? Um, right. <laughs> I didn't remember <laughs> it sounding like that. Yeah, yeah, it's great. It has a cool, it has a nice, like, rich sound to it, I think. It sounds nice. Yeah, absolutely. Um Though before we like sort of hype up the FDS audio too much, uh, bear in mind that its usage often left something to be desired. Um, Steve, I know you're a big fan of Castlevania music, right? (laughs) Kind of understated, yeah. Huge fan. Um, So, of course, you remember that cool mansion track from Castlevania 2, Dwelling of Doom? Oh yeah, that's awesome. So yeah, that's the version most listeners are probably uh, familiar with, but here's the original FDS version. Yeah, so that's not so great, I don't think. Yeah, I, I think that, and just kind of going back to some of the things we mentioned in previous episodes, I think that it probably was that, you know, the FDS version was a little bit earlier in Konami's catalog. Um, and it kind of sounds like earlier Konami music. And the 2AO3 version sounds like, the you know, that really, like, during that the, the heyday of uh, Konami music, uh, that, like, 88 kind of area. Yeah, I think I think maybe the original version of the Castlevania 2 soundtrack suffers a little bit because it's like right on the edge of like mm-hmm. early Konami NES music and later Konami NES music. So, um, yeah. But yeah, before we give more audio examples and do our analysis, uh, we should talk a bit more about the Famicom Disk System itself. The Famicom Disk System was released in Japan on February 21st, 1986. Um, it came with a, a, a decent amount of launch titles, which is kind of interesting. I think a lot of the older consoles did have more than one launch title. We're kind of used to some consoles in, of this era having one. Right. Um, and today, obviously, they have like you know they try to put as many launch titles together as possible. So it, when it would launch, it included, and you know these are the names of the games. I'm sorry, baseball, golf, mahjong, <laughs> soccer tennis you know really good stuff right. um super mario brothers as well and you know some game called legend of zelda i guess <laughs> right well that last one's uh obviously a very impactful title 
um, according yeah. to NintendoLife.com and Damien McFerrin's article, uh, Slip Disc, The History of the Famicom Disk System, Nintendo intended the Famicom Disk System to handle the cream of the crop, the best new games, etc. So it's no surprise that Metroid, Kid Icarus, Castlevania, Super Mario Bros. 2, uh, the, like the Lost Levels version, you know, those were all uh, FTS exclusives at first. Uh, the Famicom Disk System uses this, uh, in, in terms of how it actually works, um, it uses a special square-like cart that kind of plugs into the top of the Famicom, uh, and then that's kind of connected from the top of the Famicom into the disk drive. Um, the Famicom actually sits on top of the disk drive. It looks just like a standard, like if you, I mean, I may be dating myself a little bit here, but if you just had a standard, like five and a quarter or uh three and a half drive like back in the day yeah right um it, it looks literally exactly like one of those drives like an old apple 2e drive basically is what i'm thinking in my head and you put the famicom on top of it um and i'll attach a picture here just so you can see it all in action cool uh and notably and perhaps bizarrely the uh, famicom disk system can run on six uh, c-cell batteries or use an uh, ac adapter um that's kind of weird. <laughs> I'd rather plug it in than waste batteries. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the logic behind it was, and I've had some, you know, I, I've read this in a couple different places. The six C-cell batteries was needed because a lot of, you know, uh, this was plugging into the wall. And Nintendo kind of figured that if you had the disc, if you had the regular Famicom and a TV, that's the two outlets. People didn't really have splitters. So I think it was to save space and, you know, oh. culturally saving space was very important. Um, you know, differences between American consoles and Japanese consoles, the, the actual cords for the wires for controllers are much shorter because they assume that people had less space. They didn't need all that extra wire. Right. So I assume, and I think I've read this, like I said, I think I read it in a couple different places that the batteries were simply because uh, to give you an option. So you didn't have to plug into the wall and you didn't have to use two wall outlets in your house or two separate wall outlets. Okay, that makes sense. And this is a bit of a tangent, but there, you know there, there's um, two four-controller adapters for the uh, NES? Um, there's oh, wow. One, there's, one, there's a four-score, and then there's another one that's, like, remote-powered. And I think the one that's mm-hmm. remote uh, also runs on 6C batteries. Oh, that's interesting. So I, I would have to, know that. I'd have to double-check that. I own both of them, um, but, I mean, they're, like, in a, some box and God knows where, so. Um, <laughs> wow. Yeah. I think I... Um, played the four-player version of swords and serpents with my brother just to say we could so like (laughs) we like just like alternated like there was was no point in doing it it didn't make any sense anyway sorry (laughs) off topic uh yeah continue on the uh, disc system history here yeah so i think the most interesting thing about this console was the price point and you know it's an attachment it actually cost at the time fifteen thousand yen uh, I mean, which today would be what a hundred. I mean, it's easy to you can just do the the thousand yen co- uh, conversion. So one hundred fifty dollars, obviously not adjusted for inflation. Um, so th- you know that's kind of a big investment for something you're just attaching to your console. Um, one of the benefits though was is that for two thousand yen you could buy a disc, any disc you wanted. For five hundred yen you could install a game, so you could buy a disc for two thousand yen and install any game you wanted on there. Uh, once you bought the disc, you could continue to install new games over and over and over to your liking. Um, it was a really thrifty way to buy and play new games when you wanted, basically. And hell, I guess that's less than the price of a blockbuster rental like at that time. <laughs> 
That's pretty cool, actually. And you could get your card formatted at disk system kiosks that were in retail stores all over Japan. Uh, games at the time were about 5,000 to 7,000 yen. And so this was a total bargain. Yeah. Also, I mean, there's another price point to this too. Um, not only could you, you know, just buy them for 2,000 yen and, you know, reformat them to have a disc, but you could also buy permanent games. Uh, they came in a little plastic case and had an instruction manual, and these were still cheaper than the other priced games at, you know, the uh, 5,000 to 7,000 yen. Um, <clears throat> I have a bunch of these. They're actually really cool looking. The manuals were specifically designed for them. They're so cool. That's cool. Yeah, I've actually never seen any of those before, so I'll have to look that up. It's great. Yeah, no, it, they came in like this nice little plastic case that had like enough room for the disc, which comes in a plastic hard case, and the manual itself. Um, they're nice little packages. And actually, before I had researched uh, a lot of the stuff for today's uh, podcast, I didn't realize that that was something that was a special package. Oh, um, okay. And so I yeah. have a lot of these, and I had no clue that that was actually something that was kind of special, uh, a permanent game. I didn't know that. Wow. Um, uh, speaking of other cool things about the disc system, so you could apparently take your disc to a Nintendo uh, disc fax machine uh, and submit your high scores to Nintendo for various contests. Yeah, if you won those contests, too, you got these like gold discs, which I, I don't even think I've seen on eBay. I'd love to. I don't even think I've seen a picture of a gold disc. I know they had blue discs for some of the contest versions, but I've, I've never don't know anything about the huh. gold disc it, it, i'll have to look that up actually um so obviously uh you know we we kind of cover what was great about that in the history of it but what might be some downsides to this so there's a couple um for one game designers were making less money the price point of 500 yen per copy was bad for business uh so much that square stopped making final fantasy one for the disc system uh, and that's why they had it come out in cartridge instead. Uh, oh, you know, so wow. you know that's would have been interesting to hear. Uh, actually, the Final Fantasy One soundtrack with the FDS audio, but um, we didn't get that. Yeah, I mean uh, that would have that's kind of like yeah, that would have been great. <laughs> well, especially if it was more like the Zelda example and less like the Castlevania example. But yeah, I would. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, you know, in terms also with the disc system, and uh, it, you know, I can attest that many of my disc system games have started to fail over the years. Uh, the disc, the discs don't have. Okay, so you know when you had discs, I guess when we were younger, or whatever. The standard three and uh, three and a half floppies, they had that like metal snappy kind of cage over them. Yeah, you, the thing you, you could slide them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are basically the same, but Nintendo to save money didn't put those on there, so you could just put your finger on the actual. You know how like you used to get yelled at by putting your finger on the disc yeah. or doing something like that. Yeah, you could just do that. Not. You know, because there's no snappy thing, you would just do that by accident in some cases. There's just a hole. The, yeah, just a hole, and you can see the the in, the inside right there. Oh um, wow! And so, I mean, that very prone to failure. There's all kinds of things. UV, the different ways that they could fail. I found that a lot of my discs have started to fail, um, especially my non-permanent ones. Now that I know they're non-permanent, um, so it's kind of a bummer. Like I said that before, the, the special blue discs were made. Um, and those had the little metal, uh, like a little metal trap that kind of protected it, um, you know, but it wasn't a standard feature. Gotcha. And, and I guess the other thing that really, you know, just kind of on a tangent, but another thing that really irked me about the disc system was the drive band. Oh, what's up with that? Well, in the disc system, there's literally a rubber band that moves the drive. Inside there, there's a rubber band that's attached to, two, like, you know, literally spins the drive. It used to break all the time. And, you know, uh, I, I've replaced mine twice since I've owned it on my regular disc system. Um, 
Nintendo actually used to do this for you under warranty up until about 2000 or so, maybe 2001. I read that somewhere. So you could actually, if it broke, you'd send it to them to give you a new band. Um, nowadays, though, you just have to replace it. I, I can't imagine like you're playing like your Game Boy Advance game and you're like, mm-hmm. oh, I want to break out the FTS. Oh, it broke. Hey, let me send it into Nintendo. They'll still fix it. Like that's yeah, I mean, yeah that's that, pretty that, cool, actually. Yeah. <laughs> it is pretty cool. I mean, I, you know, Nintendo is cool that way and that they still supported something and they were still willing to get the bands. Obviously, now that it's been like 15 years since they've done that, the bands are kind of actually hard to get. Um, and I mean, you think about it, they didn't use a metal band, they used a rubber band. What happens to a rubber band over time? It loses traction, it can get dried out, there's all these problems with it. And I think that Nintendo knew that, and that's why they supported that uh, that long. Wow. Um, so because of that, I ended up buying, uh, I mean, I have my disc system, but I also bought a Sharp Twin Famicom. Oh, yes, yeah, I was reading about that a little bit. It's a, um, basically, it's a Famicom combined with the disc system, right? Like, it has a cartridge slot and a disc slot? yeah. And that's it's kind of nice too because like uh, the belts for that are actually easier to get somehow. I don't understand why. Um, you know, and and it's actually a lot easier to repair. It's it's such a pain in the neck to repair a disc system, and some people out there probably think it's easy. I just there's so many things that you have to take apart to do it, and it's just literally putting in a literal rubber band. It's frustrating. I know some people who put metal bands in there. They bought like upgrades for it. I'm not that hardcore, <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know they do break and they break. They, they broke on me quite a few times, you know, old technology. The one thing to look out for, though, since we're, like, very focused into the audio, is that apparently that mm-hmm. version of the system will, I think, play the FTS audio, like, even louder than it's supposed to play. Oh, that's interesting. And it'll be a recurring thing. You know, we'll mention it again later in the episode. But one of the problems we have with how the FTS audio was used is sometimes it's a little on the loud side. It's, like, a little mm-hmm. loud in the mix compared to, like, the normal NES channels. Um, mm-hmm. So if you have a console, uh, like, a version of it that makes the FTS audio even louder... Um, yeah, (laughs) I I can imagine that, you know, getting in the way of the music and sound effects and stuff. So, oh yeah, absolutely. Oh yeah. I forgot to mention. So the disc system also offered the ability to save, uh, something that a lot of games didn't have before the disc system. You know, we take that for granted because we just think, you know, we got Zelda, um, on cartridge. It had the save ability, but I mean, it was released on the Famicom disc system first. So, um, but, you know, that save technology around 87, 88, uh, you know, in the, in the cartridge versions, that was becoming more perfected and becoming a lot cheaper. So it, it was making the the save feature of the disk system, you know, kind of less uh, tantalizing. Yeah, I mean, that is kind of a big selling point for that to be able to save. And, and it's interesting to think of like, hey, you know, cartridge, we've always had cartridges that could just save. And to think there was a time when there wasn't, it, it kind of is, is interesting in itself. Uh, I guess just kind of wrapping up history here really quick. I mean, all in all, you know, the retailers got tired of people not using the big kiosks in their stores. Companies stopped making games because they weren't making any money. And by 1989, the releases started to kind of slow down. Um, When we get to 1991, there were eight releases. And by 1992, there was only two. And 92 is the last official releases. So the console attachment was pretty much dead at that point. So you're looking at about six years of it. And most of the production uh, between, you know, the first couple of years, it was open. Right. Uh, you know, in terms of Nintendo thinking that it was going to be the cream of the crop, uh, it was for a little bit. And then it started to kind of unravel, I guess. And Nintendo's idea of it being their kind of <clears throat> special brand or special kind of uh, console that released special games for, um, really, it, re- it really wasn't that by the, if you look at the whole body of work, I guess. Right.
Okay, so now that we know more about the disk system itself and its history, let's take a closer look at the expansion audio itself. What was it and how did it work? Well, as you mentioned in the introduction, the sound it uses is wavetable synthesis with occasional or optional frequency modulation. So yes, there's a primitive FM aspect to it too. Uh, and this audio's output is the two, uh, the 2C33 chip on the Famicom Disk Systems RAM card, which is that aforementioned kind of cart that goes into the top of the Famicom. Right. And, uh, you know, but ignoring the frequency modulation part for now, let's talk about the wavetable synth first, uh, since that could be considered like the core of the FDS sound. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so when you draw a waveform, it's going to have some kind of resolution to it. Uh, earlier, I described it as like a free space to draw what you want. Um, so like compared to other preset waveforms that you can't alter in normal NES music, if you're designing your own sounds for the FDS and Famitracker's instrument editor, that software literally lets you click and drag around with your mouse to draw a shape in there. Yeah, it's kind of oddly satisfying. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and like, so that freedom to put what you want in there, you know, like that's why I call it a free space. Um, but of course, like that has specific limitations and parameters and all that fun stuff we like to discuss. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen the FDS wavetable described as 64 by 6 bit audio. Um, and what that means is the first number is the total number of individual samples or like steps of the waveform. Mm -hmm. So you essentially have a bar graph to draw your waveform in and 64 is how long that bar graph is. Yeah. So, I mean, we've talked about it in the past about how a square wave is just a simple waveform that is halfway on and halfway off and some, you know, exactly halfway on, exactly halfway off. Mm -hmm. Because we're working with 64 here to make an FDS produce a square wave, you need to tell it the first 32 steps to be zero and the last 32 steps to be max. That would make a perfect square. Yeah, exactly. Um, but speaking of that zero and max you just mentioned, uh, that's where the latter part of the 64 by uh, 6 bit descriptor comes in from. Because you also have height, like a y axis to your bar graph. So that's called the bit depth. Like that's the available bit depth you're working with. Mm hmm. A 6-bit value gives you 64 again as a maximal possible number, or I guess 63 really in this case since you're counting up from zero. Um, so for, in other words, for every 64 steps along the way in that bar graph, you can input a number between zero to 63. Oh, so I mean, obviously then the resolution's pretty good, right? I mean, that's a lot of numbers to work with. Yeah, it is actually. And when you're looking at video game consoles or peripherals that produced wavetable synth audio, uh, FDS audio is actually up there in terms of quality. Like, the Game Boy has a channel for wavetable uh, and sample playback, but that's only 32 by 4-bit in comparison. So that's giving you only 32 steps, half the steps, um, and where you can input values from 0 to 15, as opposed to 0 through Oof. 63. Yeah, and that lower resolution has to affect and, and give it lower quality sound, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, here's an example of the Game Boy trying to play a sine wave, followed by the FTS also trying to play a very similar shaped uh, sine wave. Yeah, like those don't even sound the same at no, all. No, the fidelity is so much better on the FDS. That's crazy. Yeah. I, I've never actually put those two side by side like that. That's crazy. Yeah, the the Game Boy one sounds really rough uh, and harsh, and the <laughs> FDS sounds very smooth. Yeah, silky kind of. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I I feel like the lower quality actually works an advantage for the Game Boy. I mean, that's a whole different topic of discussion. Yeah. Um, I the grittier sound works just advantage, but um, mm -hmm. there's also a couple other examples of consoles that use wavetable synth as well that are higher quality than the Game Boy, but still lower quality than the FDS. Um, there's the Turbo Graphics with 32 by 5 bit and Virtual Boy with 32 by 6 bit wavetable. 
Oh, the virtual boy. Yeah. And <laughs> I mean, to be fair, both of the systems have multiple channels of, yeah. uh, you know, wavetable synth. We're talking about the FDS only having one. So, you know, we're talking about comparing just like one of the channels in those systems to, to this one here. And Steve, actually, because I know you've worked with this chip before and I haven't, and I, I tried looking it up, but didn't really, couldn't find good information on it. The uh, Namco expansion ship. Uh, oh yeah, the N163, yeah. Uh, that, that offers up to eight channels, is that right? Yeah, eight channels of Wavetable. I'm not sure of the bit depth. Yeah, that. That, that's something I wanted to double check. So, um, I, I, yeah, I we can gonna, just put it in the notes, I think. We'll that put it in the sense. notes and, you know, someone <laughs> in the comments will tell us exactly what it is, I'm yeah. sure. So, <laughs> so that'd be awesome. You, you guys are on that stuff right away. So, you know, it's it's great. Uh, we're really appreciative. Oh, yeah, a- absolutely. <laughs> I, I love getting that sort of feedback. No, um, I love it. Yeah. Um, I, I guess what kind of discerns this or you know something you we, we can talk about that makes it a little different is there's also that frequency modulation aspect to fds audio yeah um and, and you can apply these modulations uh, modulation effects to your instruments um in some cases it's used to achieve a simple vibrato effect um and we have an example of that from uh the original super mario brothers 2 so the japanese version yes Yeah, what you're hearing is the note starts off just using a standard wavetable synth. There's no modulation happening. Then when you hear that vibrato kicking in, uh, the reason that's happening is because a modulation table with a sine wave uh, drawn in is turning on. Oh, that's interesting. Cause, I mean, you didn't have to use the modulation table to get vibrato out of the FDS. You could have just done it the same way you did it for any other channel on the NES, which is just to directly tell the pitch the waver up and down. Yeah, that's right. And from the instruments I've dug through, it seems to be kind of like a 50-50 thing uh, for FDS music made back in the day. Like, if you hear a vibrato sound, it seems like there's an equal chance they could have done it one way or the other. You know, modulation table or no modulation. So, um, But th- that's just like my super rough estimate. Of course, I don't really have the stats on that. Yeah, interesting. And I mean, uh, so if you want to do something, you know, more harsher or drastic uh, mm-hmm. to the modulation, um, that's usually done to create sound effects. The often dirtier, scratchier sounding, and but can also sound warbly or maybe even kind of vocal, like a human grunt or a creature of some kind. Right. <laughs> a lot of description here, but you know what I mean. We have an example here where we compiled all the sound effects from the original version of Zelda 2 uh, that used the, those kinds of uh, modulated sounds. And uh, because these voices are made by applying modulation effects and also often manipulating how the modulation uh, is applied, it's not uncommon for the underlying wavetable synth to also be used as a completely normal sounding melodic voice. Uh, A couple of the sound effects you just heard uh, were more drastic and weird modulations uh, added onto the same instrument that's used for the whistle tune in Zelda 2. Interesting. Oh, so you mentioned there being a modulation table that makes this all possible. Well, so what can go into that table? What kind of parameters were involved? Well, the space you have to draw a modulation shape is a bit strange. Um, It has 32 steps in length, Mm -hmm. uh, but when you increase or decrease values, it has an additive effect 
or I guess I should say uh, every change you make is relative to the previous change. Mm-hmm. And this was explained in greater detail to me by Hun Retro Geek, uh, who said the following. Uh, internally, every little block of the 32 steps uh, that you see in Fama Tracker is actually executed twice in a row, and the whole table is relative. And so if you look up what all the blocks mean, you will see that they add either a positive value of plus one, plus two, or plus four, or a negative value of minus one, minus two, or minus four, to something called the uh, modulation accumulator, mm-hmm. which has a, a s- assigned 7-bit format, so it can go from negative 128 to positive 127. Uh, this value in the accumulator is added to the real frequency of the channel. Uh, so that's super interesting because that's something I had no idea about before. Yeah. Because uh, when you're playing around with it in Fama Tracker and you're sort of drawing a shape in the modulation table, uh, there's nothing that spits out the information of what the current value of the modulation accumulator is. Mm-hmm. I would call that like a hidden stat, basically. Um, to someone like myself who doesn't really know the technical aspect as much, just uses like software to dissect and pick at instruments uh, mm-hmm. i had no idea the modulation accumulator existed so um explaining that you know really clear things up for me so yeah so you can go the lowest value is negative 128 the highest value mm-hmm. is 127 mm-hmm. but you can only shift in plus one plus two plus four or minus one minus two minus four at a time interesting so, uh and he also points out a specific quirk of how it works uh, if you increase or decrease the mod accumulator too much it wraps around so 127 plus one uh, equals one negative one twenty eight, and that effectively gives you like a sawtooth shaped modulation. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and uh, yeah, so um, that's something like you'd want to maybe avoid if you didn't want to do that by accident. So yeah, absolutely. It, it's interesting because like I, I rarely work with the FDS channel, um, and it's actually I guess, and I think that maybe the reason some other people don't work with it is you know the modulation aspect of it is kind of daunting. Like there's nothing you do in uh, chiptune music that has something like that um so having that there and having this little explanation it makes a lot more sense to me now yeah <laughs> yeah it it's just interesting you know it's one of those things that you kind of like you're saying to yourself i'm gonna add the fds channel to this track and then you see all the options and you're like i'm probably not going to use this very well because i don't know what i'm doing right yeah um, that's so, in in the past like myself i've only played around with it like I've, I've played with it to the extent of like drawing waveforms in there and putting in random values um but yeah i didn't really explore it at this depth before so um, yeah no, this is great this is yeah, great so yeah thanks again for 100 retro geek by the way like i will i we should link to a soundcloud and his stuff in the comments because um he's a huge help to the podcast and uh mm-hmm. i know he's mentioned to me before in the past that he would love one of his dreams is to make game music uh, mm-hmm. He's a super um, talented person and super knowledgeable. So I'm just going to throw a plug in here because like, he is a incredibly helpful resource to this podcast. So No, he is. Absolutely. Thank you so much, man. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Um, um, so uh, actually getting back to all of this yes. uh, after after, you know, having a good shout out here. Yeah. Um, I guess uh, something important we sh- that we should mention is that applying the modulation effect isn't just kind of an on or off kind of thing. There are parameters that essentially tell you how hard you want it applied, right? I mean, there has to be. Yeah. Yeah, so you can manipulate the rate and depth of the modulation effect. Uh, the depth can be anywhere from 1 to 63, while the rate can be anywhere between 1 and, get this, uh, 4,095. <laughs> That's a lot of rates to choose from. Yeah. And <laughs> wow. To make uh, some sense of these numbers, let's listen to those parameters being messed with. Um, so I chose a simple preset waveform, a square wave, for the wavetable synth. Then for the modulation table, 
I left it mostly flatline with no effect. So that means like for the most of the 32 steps, nothing's happening. But then mm-hmm. for the last several, there's a sort of upwards blip. Um, so th- this makes it easy to hear when the modulation effect repeats since it's not mm-hmm. doing anything until like the end of it. Um, so here's what the lowest rate and lowest depth sounds like. Both are set to one. Now, without changing the rate or how fast it happens, let's increase that depth from 1 to 10. So you can hear uh, that how long it takes the loop hasn't changed, but the pitch bend at the end goes further up. So let's listen again with the depth increased to 20. And once again, finally, with the highest depth possible of 63. And uh, now for the fun part, we're going to drop the depth back down to 20 to get that nicer, simple pitch pen back. But now we're going to increase the rate to 2. Here it is again at rate 4. Again at rate 8. So, Steve, based on how fast it is already, can you honestly picture this going up to 4,095? Uh, no. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. So, uh, let's crank things up a bit. Here's rate 40. Here's rate uh, 150. Here's rate 1,000. And finally, rate 4095, where it it comes back around to, like, sounding smooth again because it's too fast. Yeah. (laughs) That's crazy. So, yeah, just a little demo to hopefully help illuminate, like, what the two different, like, uh, parameters are for changing, you know, rate and depth and how they, you know, what your options are. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, keep in mind that the, the rate and depth can be changed really at any moment. Um, so creating and you know, sliding these values up and down or abruptly changing them uh, is basically how we attained the sound effects we heard earlier. Uh, exactly. But anyways, I want to probe further into the FM potential. We have a modulating frequency, but it doesn't sound much like the FM synthesis we know of from the Sega Genesis and related synthesizers. I imagine this is due in part to not having four operators like the YM2612. Uh, but what else is going on? Uh, this is another topic that was, you know, beyond my area of knowledge. So I consulted mm-hmm. Hun Retro Geek again, and uh, I'll just quote his response to me. The FM modulator is a fairly obscure and mysterious part of the FDS channel. Many emulators implement it incorrectly, and the tools are fairly limited to test ideas with the real thing because not many people have one. I dare say that all games use it simply for sign-shaped vibrato or to produce wacky sound effects, uh, like the FDS version of Metroid does. In reality, it can do stuff that sounds like a very primitive Yaha uh, FM chip. Um, the thing is, Yamaha chips are not really FM. They're just called FM for the sake of simplicity. They actually employ something called phase modulation, while the FDS is the one with the true FM. Oh, interesting. Huh. Yeah. That's uh, that's something I need to read up more on. because that's Yeah, I'll uh, definitely have to read more yeah. about that, too. So, uh, And he continues, the uh, shape of the modulation has a drastic effect on the end product you get. Um, as we heard before, you know, those sound effects that were crazy sounding uh, were made out of like that simple whistle sound. Um, so um, 
He says it's the easiest to use a sine wave as the modulator because if you make it random, the mod- modulation accumulator can easily overflow, like he talked about before, mm-hmm. and wrap back to negative uh, deviation from the bass pitch, which, as he describes, it gets you police scanner-like sounds. Yeah, it definitely sounds like that. Uh, and he says the best way to experiment with this is getting the latest OCC FAMA tracker, uh, which now has the capability of instantly setting the right modulation rate based on your note. Or he said, or you can set uh, these different ratios, uh, one to two, one to four, or whatever the ratio between the note and the mod- modulator frequency is, uh, similar to the Yamaha, how the Yamaha chips do it. Oh, interesting. Um, he made a brief demo showing off OCC family trackers, FDS, like, uh, FM presets. So we highly recommend checking out. We'll, we'll link that in the show notes here. I think that's probably why there, there, some of these effects were not as known to us, uh, like being native family tracker users. Right. Um, and I know that uh, Hertz Devil has put a lot of interesting things into the uh, OCC family tracker. Um, so th- that's kind of, I should really check that out, actually. Yeah, it's cool. They, they you know, he put a lot of consideration into the potential of the FDS audio, mm-hmm. uh, you know, wanting to use it in ways that it could be used, uh, not just ways that it was used. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so now we've covered both the history of the of Famicom Disk System and how the expansion audio works. Let's take a closer look at how the expansion audio was actually used in games that were released. And I guess we'll begin with the starting question. Was it often used to its potential? Uh, unfortunately, it wasn't really. So, you know, as we mentioned in this episode's introduction, its usage often left a lot to be desired, uh, at least in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, for starters, it wasn't uncommon for there to be games that didn't use the extra audio at all, like not even for music or sound effects. Uh, an example of this would be Castlevania 1. So the FDS audio wasn't used in Castlevania 1, but it does have an extra song. We, we can give it credit for that, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah, it had a name entry screen that was cut from the cartridge version, and with it, a short little groove. Uh, I believe this music can still be found in the data of the cartridge version, um, you know, just as unused content. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and uh, I remember hearing it in the NSF file a long time ago and thinking there was like some kind of secret <laughs> New Game Plus content I hadn't found yet. So, you know, I it got my hopes up for some kind of undiscovered secret. Yeah, use Game Genie and find the secret, you know, version of it or something. Right. <laughs> I don't know, you yeah. know, one of those kind of things. It's right. like, you know, maybe I'll, I'll fix this code and it'll work. Right. Um, <laughs> So there were some games that did use the FDS audio for sound effects and music, but it wasn't uncommon for it to only be used selectively in their soundtracks. Um, You'll find many examples of games that don't feature the extra audio in any of the background music themes. Uh, it'll just be in the stuff like the title screens, introductions, ending credits, etc., etc., etc. Yeah, some examples include Zelda 1, Zelda 2, Doki Doki Panic, uh, Metroid, and so on. So lots of first-party Nintendo soundtracks are arranged this way. And I have to think it was a conscious choice to not have all the songs use the FDS audio. Yes, uh, we don't have any sources confirming this, but our best guess is that they were made this way so that the extra sound channel could be free for sound effects during gameplay. Right. Whenever you have a sound effect, uh, whatever sound channel or channels that are needed to make that sound can't be playing music at the same time, you know, because the channels are monophonic. Yeah. Uh, Here's an example of the first pulse wave channel isolated in Super Mario Brothers, uh, showing how the jumping sound effect completely overrides the music. (laughs) 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 It's hard not to laugh at that. It's funny. 
And so with all the channels going on at once, that's not a particularly big deal, especially when you're focused on gameplay. It's hard to notice the music being interrupted. Like even as someone who like really focuses on the audio of the systems, I never play like NES games being like, oh, the sound effects are like interrupting the music. Like, yeah, it's like whatever. But Mm -hmm. um, but I think that because FDS audio has such a distinguishable sound from the rest of the NES audio and sometimes the sound effects are designed so that they're like pretty big and splashy sounding. Uh, I think it would become more apparent that it was breaking up the musical lines. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the FDS version of Zelda makes a good case for this. Uh, you have the extra FDS audio in the introduction, then it's missing from the overworld theme. It's probably no coincidence because now the FDS audio is used as a sound effect for your sword. So let's hear an example of that. Yeah, it's probably fair to assume they didn't want that sound interrupting the melodic lines. Uh, Metroid is another good example because it's not only the intro and ending music that uses the FDS audio, Mm -hmm. but literally every track where you're not in control of the player. Um, So including jingles like when you collect an item and like descend into a new area or whatever. Uh, So it's pretty clear they're purposely avoiding using that extra channel for music during gameplay. Uh, while using it everywhere else they can otherwise. Yeah, I mean, but it, it didn't have to be this way. You could just either just not worry about it and let the sound effects interrupt your music, or primarily make sound effects with normal Famicom channels, so you don't have that problem. And then you could just, you know, use the FDS channel, I guess. Yeah. <clears throat> so you do get some soundtracks that use the extra audio throughout anyways. Yeah, and I tried my best to find every FDS game uh, that does this, at mm-hmm. least ones that have NSF rips for it, because that's how I searched for it. Uh-huh. Um, so I probably missed some, but I came up with 18 titles. Again, so th- these are ones that have the extra audio for all or most of the tracks of music in the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. There's uh, I Senshi Nicole, Backgammon, Biomiracle Bakute Uppa, Castlevania 2, Exciting Billiard, Falcian, Famicom Grand Prix 2, Famicom uh, Tante Club Part 2, Fire Bam P, whatever that is, uh, <laughs> Gyrus, Night Move, Nazo no Murasame Jao, Shin Onigashima, Time Twist, 3D World Runner, Versus Excitebike, Deep Dungeon 2, and Famicom Mukashi Banashi Yuyuki. That's good. I, yeah, I good, good Japanese. Yeah, Yu Yuki. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. yeah, I, yeah I don't know any Japanese, so I, I, I struggle. So. Yeah, I was I was looking looking at the titles here, and I was like, are, are we gonna? Yeah, that was pretty good. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I guess we could start with picking some of the not so great entries. Uh, we opened up the show with Castlevania Two, a soundtrack we both honestly love, though I guess you know we're both not very fond of the FTS version, unfortunately. Yeah, I think it's worth uh, pointing out like how there's usually a sort of longing for content and games that we didn't get here in the States uh, after localization. Like whether it's cut content due to censorship or stuff that gets lost in translation or like uh, just us getting like poor box art. Yeah. Um, you know, like the way this stuff is usually talked about, we often hear strong pr- praise for the stuff we didn't get. And I've seen that said about the Famicom Disk System's audio, um, but to be fair, I think the grass isn't always greener, and we can submit Castlevania 2 uh, and Metroid uh, as examples of that. Uh, their FDS soundtracks, in my opinion, are simply worse than the versions we got. It sounds kind of like bad presets on a keyboard play, being played obnoxiously on top of NES music. 
<laughs> it really does. Yeah. And like that's the thing. Like many FTS instruments do appear to be presets of some kind. Mm-hmm. Uh, a sort of project I took on leading up to this episode was to try and compile an instrument pack uh, where I ripped the wavetable and modulation table data for all the instruments from a variety of soundtracks. And I wound up doing this for 12 soundtracks before this episode. And I found the same instruments over and over, uh, even used by different companies. Um, so I made an Imger album uh, of it so you can easily see all the waveforms. I'll link it in the show notes. Uh, I highly recommend checking it out. It makes it really easy to see just like when the samples pop up again. Like you'll see Nintendo using yeah. it. Then Konami also uses it. So you know it's like some sort of shared sound set. So. No, it, it's pretty cool. Yeah, definitely check that out. I was, it, It's really impressive work and it's a labor of love. So oh, <laughs> definitely yeah. check that out. Thank you. It's really cool. Um, I mean, the presets themselves weren't that bad, actually. Um, it's just, it's the sort of loud and undynamic use of them. That's the main offender here, I believe. Yeah. There's, there's something very unsatisfying about having these loud notes play on top of the music, uh, that have very little definition in their volume envelopes. It's just a sort of like, wah, wah, like sound on top that gets to be too much. And and something we didn't mention earlier when discussing the audio specifications of FTS audio is that unlike pulse wave and noise waves channel, the, you know, the FTS audio actually has 32 volume settings. So there's even more room to play with the volume. Yet we have these very bland and undynamic shaped notes, just kind of like walls of sound, you know? I mean, uh, Metroid really isn't that bad. All the BGM tunes are the same as the versions we had, and mm-hmm. the intro actually uses the FDS all right. It's just those jingles and the ending tune that are a bit jarring to me. So uh, that has the NES soundtrack come out on top for me. Uh, but I think there's a pretty huge difference between uh, Dracula 2 and Castlevania 2. Yeah, I mean, for the original version of Castlevania 2, it's Dracula 2, Noroi uh, Naofun In. Uh, in Japan, it wasn't just a matter of the FTS audio being used undynamically, but the rest of the soundtrack was just simpler. Um, and if we take out the FTS lead from the mansion track, it's going to sound like this. Okay, so let's compare that to the Castlevania 2, not Dracula 2, but Castlevania 2, what we heard here. Yeah, we heard an intro, but it's a brief refresher here. Yeah, it's interesting how much more effort was put into the sound design there. There's pitch bends, more detailed volume envelopes and echo effects. There's vibrato. Uh, there might even be stuff like in later tracks where there's more percussion uh, mm-hmm. in the cartridge version. So this is a case where I definitely don't feel like we missed out due to having an audio channel cut. Yeah. Um, a while back, I tried looking up the exact release dates, and I think we got this game on cartridge something like nine months later than the FTS release. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think it's actually pretty cool to think about how someone at Konami actually cared and wanted it to sound better. No, and I, we, we've kind of talked about that before, like, you know, when someone takes and they're kind of redoing some work. Um, and, you know, we kind of said this in the intro a little bit. It, it, it was a little later and maybe it's they were able to kind of use some of the kits that they were using and some of the programming and et cetera, et cetera, that they were using already for the newer games that are coming out. Um, but it really does, kind of, you know, the FDS soundtrack kind of sounds like old Konami. 
and then Castlevania two, the way we got it sounds like the Konami, we kind of know that like heyday. So yeah, I, I think it's really interesting that, you know, it got transformed in that little bit of time. And I, I love when I hear someone who literally, if they had to take, I'm, I'm not really sure how it would have worked moving the audio from the FDS to uh, the 2A03. I'm assuming it's there, but obviously someone went through and cleaned up all of the, the code strings to make it sound really good. Um, oh, and, yeah. uh, you know, th- there was a lot of love in there. And I-, I love when I see that kind of stuff because that work is probably not very fun. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I remember actually trying to come up like, because that was a sort of question I had for myself. Like, when did Konami like really step it up in the sound design? Mm-hmm. And so I tried to think like, what's the earliest, most advanced uh, mm-hmm. Konami soundtrack? And that's that's sort of like a hard thing to define because it's like, yeah. you know there's like a sliding scale mm-hmm. but the f- two biggest leaps that i could pick out were castlevania 2 and mm-hmm. teenage mutant ninja turtles like those oh, two yeah. are the start i feel like of the more advanced uh, audio if you go to games earlier than those it's going to be a lot simpler in the sound so yeah it, it'd be really interesting to find out exactly what happened like that right. someone could bring in these drum samples and was like these are the samples we use we're doing this now yeah um you know or was there a different design team or uh, that's something we can definitely investigate right. in another episode Yeah, part of it might have had to do with more you know mapper space anyways we're going on a pretty yeah. big tangent but um yeah <laughs> oh you yeah, know we, we should continue on this tangent because um I did when I was making my uh, collection of all like the instruments mm-hmm. used in these games. I found something that looks to be evidence that they had mess up instrument data in Castlevania Two, and possibly indicates that they didn't know what they were doing entirely. Interesting. Um, so there's this weird thing. This gets very like technical, but uh, so the modulation tables often used a sine wave um, to like modulate their notes. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, Hunter Geek mentioned that earlier is to avoid like overflow and whatever. And there's a very common modulation table that's used. Again, it's another one of these presets, I think. You'll find it in a bunch of the Nintendo soundtracks. Um, so it's this very particular sets of ones and sevens. That's how they draw their sine wave using a bunch of ones and mm-hmm. sevens. And you look at the so that's supposed to be in the modulation table, right? But you mm-hmm. look at the instrument data for the wavetable synth and it starts off with that same pattern of ones and sevens. <laughs> and it's just kind of like, I mean, technically it's like halved, but yeah. it, it's still, it's a very specific shape that you see come up in modulation tables and budget. And then you see it at the beginning of a waveform. And it's kind of like, do they copy and paste these numbers to the wrong place? Yeah. Um, and it's, I mean, the end result is something that doesn't really matter. Uh, it doesn't make the instrument sound bad. You can kind of just draw wacky sounds in there. And if you don't apply heavy modulation, it's still going to sound okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so for all we know, it was a mistake, but not a bad one. Maybe they realized it and said, oh, but the sound's okay anyway. So, you know. Um, but it might, just, probably probably wasn't actually very noticeable. Right. I mean, and, and uh, you know, kind of looking through the instruments you put there, we were kind of talking about this a little bit offline, but, you know, the actual thing that you can only put, if you're setting your wavetable, you can only set between 0 and 63. And yeah, I, if I recall yeah. correctly, that entry that you showed me, and this was something that was mentioned to me, I happened to talk to uh, I'm a Track Man about this when you brought it up, just to kind of get uh, his take on it. Mm-hmm. And he immediately looked at it and said, wow, there's entries in here for the wavetable that go beyond 63 yeah there's like 200 or something in there which clearly indicates that that data was not you know meant for that particular pattern but you also mentioned to me that there's other ones that go above 63 as well not as yeah, high but and, just a little bit but you know i am trackman and hun retro geek both had the same impression that he thinks mm-hmm. that's evidence that the people didn't really know what they were doing interesting uh, that, because what happens is apparently so you can't go above 63 mm-hmm. but you could tell the data to write values above it uh, oh, but, but it's just okay. not it's just not going to work i think it treats it as if the number is zero i think okay. 
Um, but uh, yeah, so it's so that messed up Castlevania instruments. So not only does it start with the ones and seven patterns that I mentioned, but it also mm-hmm. goes above sixty three, like you said. So yeah, it's kind of like two things that really makes it look suspicious. Like oh, you know, this is probably why maybe a lot of these people stuck to the presets because uh, mm-hmm. they didn't want to shy away from just using you know, the stuff that was given to them. Perhaps otherwise, no, it, you know, it, stuff like that. It's really happened. cool because like that's a finding too. Like you, you actually, we, you know, you found something oh, <laughs> like in thank here. You. And so, no, it's, uh, when you told me that I was so excited because it, it's very rare to find new things. And, um, I guess FDS audio, you know, hasn't been explored as much. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, you know, I, I guess that's like a brand new thing that you can show yeah. people. That's really cool. I love, I love hearing stuff like that. So and, I was really excited. Oh, thank you. Yeah. It can always be some confirmation bias for my end too, since I'm like, not again, we're being critical of Castlevania too. And then I find mm-hmm. this really weird looking instrument for it. And I'm just kind mm-hmm. of like, I'm like adding that on, like as my own sort of conjecture, or like evidence, like, oh, you know, they also didn't know what they were doing with it. But, you know, I don't really know that. So, um, yeah. But, you know, who knows? We have some possible evidence for that. So I'll link that specifically in the show notes as well. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, so getting back on track here, I also found another example to represent that sort of undynamic, kind of overbearing sound design for the FDS. Uh, it comes from Deep Dungeon 2. Uh, but actually, you know, I don't. I don't know, because it's so ridiculously undynamic that I think it wraps back around the quality scale and goes back to being good again. (laughs) Uh, Here's an example. Yeah, let's hear it. Yeah, see, what do you think? Is that? <laughs> I mean, it's interesting because there's no volume en- envelopes on anything in that track, as far as I can hear. Yeah, I think there's like very small ones on the square waves at in some parts, mm-hmm. or maybe they just attack at different volumes. But you're right, there are a lot of square waves throughout the whole soundtrack. They're at 15; they don't do anything. They just like hit. They just hit. I, it yeah. must have been a. It had to have been intentional, right? I think I, so. I, like I mean, think so. But like, yeah, I, I think you know, anytime there's a flaw or like a, a shortcoming when it comes to audio, that can always be embraced and turned back mm-hmm. into a positive. You know, like yeah. if you have a really crappy sound coming out of your guitar, yeah, uh, yeah. that's like, oh, that could sound amazing if you put it in the right context. So, um, yeah. there's this other track in Deep Dungeon Two where again the wavetable synth and two pulse wave channels are just kind of on at max. And there's in this time there's no break between the notes, so it's mm-hmm. just like a wall of sound. Uh, but it's actually very evil sounding, and <laughs> I like it a lot. Like the the brace of sound works great with the uh, dissonant harmonies. man that, that's pretty ominous <laughs> yeah yeah i think that sounds great you know is going the other direction like super simple sound design and you know i can appreciate that so no and it creates layers that are that actually do sound good and you're right like even though it's it's, it's pretty much at max on every channel um it has a really cool effect yeah um and speaking of you know kind of now we kind of talked about some of those things that you know we weren't too impressed with here mm-hmm. there are some great soundtracks so um Dyrus is a pretty awesome soundtrack 
Yeah, that track's awesome. I love that. No, song. I, I've always it's really funny because I, I know I know that soundtrack pretty well, and that soundtrack always reminded me of like if Monty on the Run was an evil game. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it kind of has a Monty on the Run kind of feel to it. Um, you know, just that that uh, original lead after he kind of plays the the Bach or whatever. Um, that's kind of yeah. No, I, I don't know. I just thought that was funny. <laughs> I, I guess I'm a pretty easy person to please. Uh, if you make music and you just make it evil sounding, or at least hints at being evil, that usually catches my attention. So I mean, it's yeah. funny too because like you look at what we just listen to uh from deep dungeon 2 and they both create that kind of atmosphere but you can hear how much more is done with the envelopes oh the sound design it's a yeah gulf of difference it's absolutely massive difference yeah Mm -hmm. absolutely and um you know that was made by konami and konami Mm -hmm. has some of the stronger musical entries for the fts you know which uh making good game music is kind of what they did so (laughs) it's not really a big surprise yeah um they had two fds exclusives in particular you know so these games that didn't come out on the nes and i think they have some of the best fds soundtracks uh they're falcyon and armana no kiseki uh here's an example from falcyon i find it interesting because it, it uses a very buzzy sound for the baseline and the intro and heading out of the intro it makes uh, use of one of those very heavy modulated voices uh so it sounds more like a sound effect uh in part of the build-up and uh later in the track it throws in some more of those deep buzzy basses and it sounds great let's uh take a listen Uh, so let's listen to the intro again with the FDS audio isolated, so it's easier to hear that sort of neat sound effect that I was talking about. Yeah, I just I think that's a uh, pretty cool sounding. It shows uh, more care and I think more attention to the detail of the uh, potential of the sound channel. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's a lot. There's a lot more going on with it. It's not just like a big block. Right. <laughs> not just a big block of sound. Yeah. And uh, the other one I mentioned was Arumana no Kiseki. It's composed by Kanugo Yamashita. Uh, she's the same composer as uh, for Castlevania One. Excellent. Yeah. And uh, the game is basically like Indiana Jones meets Castlevania. Um, the music is great, and the clean sound of the FTS is used very well to make some very bright and strong sounding melodies. Steve, you had something pretty neat you found. Uh, what was it? Yeah, so I was kind of like just literally preparing for the show, digging through every FDS game I could find. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I think that, like uh, you know, I found some in like some really weird places. Uh, <laughs> Jellico made this whole series of games called Big Challenge, and there's actually a bowling game called Big Challenge Go Go Bowling. I've really liked the uh, FDS bass sound, and I thought it really stood out. Um, let's give it a listen. It's pretty cool. So I found another interesting example from Time Twist, which has some pretty cool sound design in it. Uh, the FDS audio here is just playing a simple melody, but it's the buzzy and harsh sounding square wave that stands out. Um, so I think this might be an example of a track that uses a faster engine refresh rate than usual. Oh, wow. Uh, I'll need to fact check that, but that buzzy sound really does sound unusual for a square wave. And I think it's an arpeggio, but the notes are alternating really fast, you know, faster than once every 60th of a second, mm-hmm. which is like the typical engine refresh rate. And uh, yeah. so if so, that's noteworthy because that's not something you commonly find in NES music. Um you know, I actually don't know of any other examples off the top of my head, uh, aside from the game over jingle of Blaster Master. Uh, it has that sort of buzzy sort of burp at the end of it. So continuing on, it's worth mentioning that uh, Nobuo Uematsu, uh, who we all know from the you know Final Fantasy series, made some FDS soundtracks as well, which is kind of cool. <laughs> this is a pretty bizarre game called uh, Appletown Monogatari. Uh, yes. Which is barely a game. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's more like a precursor to the Tamagotchi. Um, you see a cross-section view of a house, and you basically watch a little girl all day as she goes about her activities. And sometimes you guide her into doing into certain things. Um, it, it must be fun, I guess. Um, <laughs> here's the yeah. main theme. So we were talking before about how the FDS audio is sometimes bland and undynamic, uh, but this is mm-hmm. a neat example where in between the main notes of the melody, uh, Nobuo Uematsu managed to cram in these little echo effects that are much softer. They're almost hard to hear at first. Uh, here's what it sounds like by itself. It's interesting because that that particular instrument reminds me of something that he would have used on his uh, Super Famicom, Super Nintendo work, kind of. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like the those lush strings he likes to use. So, uh, you know, that that that's pretty cool. Um, in addition to that, he also did music for a game called uh, Cleopatra No Mahal. I think that's how you say it. Uh, so here's some of the music. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that song's really cool. I like yeah, the uh, second half, especially when it kicks in with like that running eighth line note in the square wave. Mm-hmm. Um, that definitely reminds me a lot of like that could be like a Final Fantasy town theme of some kind. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, oh, so I found an example that's at the opposite end of the spectrum from the games that use the FDS instruments too loudly. Uh, it's called Famicom Tantai Club Part Two, and it uses the wavetable synth at very low volumes. Uh, so in this track, it starts off with the bass line that goes da 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 something like that, and uh, but then you'll hear the FDS voice take that over. Uh, but it's very soft. Let's give it a listen. So I thought that was cool to find because it's, you know, it yeah. sort of stands out. It's You have the wavetable synth being much quieter than the square waves. Uh, mm-hmm. So that was something I was happy to find. Yeah. And uh, there's also this track from Backgammon that I really like. Uh, I find it interesting because it uses the triangle wave for a melody. And that's a really interesting choice because I feel like when you have the extra channel, that gives you more sounds uh, that you know more types of sounds that you can use for your melody i feel like the triangle wave was kind of like the secondary thing for melodies you know like you didn't use it that much for melodies in nes music because it didn't yeah. have volume settings and so for some of the think to themselves like oh you know but i still want to use it for the melody anyways even though i have these other options uh and it, it just sounds very cool so uh let's give it a listen Yeah, so it's just interesting. You have this extra channel of sound, but they decided to feature the triangle wave in that track nonetheless. Uh, great decision. It stands out in quality, and it's a really cool track. Yeah, that that track is actually done by none other than Koichi Sugiyama. Uh, you know, who's I mean, does he need an introduction? But I mean, <laughs> he's done. He's been doing things for years. I mean, he did all the Dragon Quest series. Um, and I guess it was done mainly because, and I'm looking at this, uh, the actual posting from Rain Warrior, he was the chairman of the Backgammon Society. <laughs> oh my <laughs> so, god. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's how they got him to do it. That's crazy. And no wonder it has that kind of feel to it. Um, that's so awesome. that's a cool find. Yeah, definitely. Wow. Um, well, actually, this transitions uh, into the next part of the episode perfectly, because I wanted to point out that some of the well-known Nintendo composers uh, also have more obscure selections that can be found uh, in the FDS library, I guess, like the example we just played. Mm, Uh, So here's a really cool track from Koji Kondo. Uh, It's found in a game called Nazo no Murasame Jao.
That track's awesome. It sounds like a lost like Zelda tune. And uh, there's also the Night Move soundtrack mm-hmm. by Hip Tanaka, which has some batshit crazy music like Dr. Mario. <laughs> uh, actually, the whole thing feels a lot like a companion soundtrack to Dr. Mario, and uh, I think it's pretty awesome. I just I love how wacky that music sounds. Like he has a really good ear for making like I, I don't know putting silly stuff into the music. But I mean sound sound quality wise though, it sounds like nothing else we've heard in the episode so far. So, no, I mean it, it, I love we were kind of talking about it during uh, while we were listening or whatever. But it has the uh, Doctor Mario Tom that oh, yeah. <laughs> little Doctor Mario Tom. Yeah, it's, it's very familiar sounding, but also fresh sounding with the unique like FDS instruments he's using. Yeah, and it's it's interesting too because a night move was made by uh, Alexei uh, Pajanov, uh, the guy who made Tetris. Oh, um, so you know it's kind of and it, it was for actually made in 1990. Um, so it's it was kind of actually released later in the life of things. Maybe you know uh, Hip Tanak was able to mess around with the sounds a little bit more, but his sound design is always ingenious. Oh, like, ab- it absolutely! Just, you know, and these little quirky little effects and stuff. Um, uh, yeah, that's great. That's really great. So another great example uh, is Exciting Soccer. Uh, it's a, you know it's by Konami, uh, but this one in particular as a tractor reminds me of more of the later Konami soundtracks, which we've been kind of talking about. I think it's because they use the FDS audio for the baseline, essentially uh, in place of the triangle wave, and the pulse waves take the lead and have all sorts of signature techniques that sound very Konami. Plus, it's you know got a great and clean uh, percussive sound. So let's take a listen to that. Yeah, I love like the baseline there. It's like almost, uh, almost like the Sunsoft sample in a way. Yeah, no, it really does. It, it sounds like a real like slap bass or something. It sounds awesome. Oh, so uh, a couple games we didn't mention earlier when I was listing out those uh, you know soundtracks that use the FDS audio, um, mm-hmm. we didn't mention Otaki and Dore Miko. Uh, they're sort of in their own little category. They don't have ripped NSFs for them um, because they have like a generative music aspect to them. Um, so otaki is a shooter and uh but as you shoot you make musical sounds and it plays the sounds from the fts channel so there Mm -hmm. isn't really a way to like listen to a soundtrack for the game i mean you're just gonna have like backing tracks 
in a way. Yeah. Um, th- I think there might be like one closing tune or something like that. But um, it, actually, a pretty cool way you can listen to like a made-up soundtrack for it is there's a tool-assisted run of the game. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm sure listeners are probably familiar, but a tool-assisted run is like a, a robot-controlled speed run, essentially. You just map out all the controls. Uh, and in the game, it's in the auto-scrolling game so you can shoot at times you don't need to so the guy controlling the character like purposefully creates like his own melody his own like little soundtrack because he just shoots like when he wants to and he does it like in time and like thoughtfully um so it's like you're watching someone beat the game quickly but also like kind of jam out over the game uh here we'll play a quick example of that actually Yeah, that's cool i mean that's very of we can't complete this episode without bringing that up because uh yeah you have a game where you generate music um so yeah yeah that's pretty cool and uh steve we were talking a little bit about do re miko before off the podcast what was the deal with that game again well it was interesting so it was it came with a keyboard mm-hmm. um and i was kind of looking it up uh it, it's just like it's actually like a nice keyboard it's it's like I guess it's in the same vein as the Biracle uh, and like other kinds of keyboards that were, you know, uh, attached to the NES. Mm-hmm. Um, and it like, it was made by Konami and you could like, I mean, from my very vague understanding of it, like it basically taught you how to play piano, like by playing the melody of Gradius, um, oh <laughs> which God. is really cool. I wish I had that. Um, wow. I'm going to try to track down one of them um, so we can mess around with it on the podcast or something. Um, definitely now on my list of like, things that i'm going to clutter my house with so awesome um, very cool I'll yeah have, please, have to try to please do because that would be great to dive into that no it'll be really fun yeah uh, i would like to go into some uh of the stuff that was made more recently for the fds you know like modern mm-hmm. uh demo tracks for it i guess um yeah. because i feel like again you're we're talking about how it wasn't always used to its potential and mm-hmm. uh hearing what people do with it now sort of points out you know what the thing is capable of so um the first track I had queued up was one from Blitz Lunar. Uh, the track is called The Labyrinth of Scotty, and he has it uploaded it on his YouTube. We'll link to that in the show notes. Um, it's just a really cool track. It's, it's like a demo of the uh, FTS audio, basically. So uh, let's give it a listen.
Yeah, that song is awesome. No, yeah, he's absolutely amazing. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, you should, we'll link to his YouTube, of course. Uh, his name is Dave Harris, but he makes music under the handle uh, Blitzlunar. Uh, he has a lot of great uh, video game music and other music as well. So, so also, I, I, you know, just kind of, we're talking about modern uh, Egyptian composers who kind of use this channel, and I was kind of uh, asking around on uh, Twitter trying to get some ideas because I've heard a lot of them and a lot of them use uh, what's known as Sunsoft Bass, which we're going to cover in a different episode. Mm -hmm. um, so we wanted to find something that didn't have Sunsoft Bass. So I got a couple of recommendations from Commandy Can uh, and uh, almost every single part and actually Fear of Dark himself, who's the track we're about to play. Mm -hmm. um, this is a great track. Um, it's It's one of my favorites by Fear of Dark um, and it creates amazing atmospheres. It's called Birth of a Universe. Um, so let's take a listen. Yeah, wow, man, I hadn't heard that before. Um, that's awesome. Yeah, that, that track beat the living daylights out of me in Famicompo uh, Pico oh, nice. two years ago. <laughs> um, it was so good. And I remember voting on that, and I was like, oh, man, that's going to win. And I know exactly who wrote it. Um. <laughs> <laughs> and we had mentioned uh, earlier that, um, you know, sometimes the emulation isn't always perfect. I know Rain Warrior, the guy who maintains uh, my NSF player of choice, uh, NSF Play, um, mm -hmm. made some effort matching volumes and stuff like that, listening to hardware recording. So I think it's one of the better sources out there, and that's where you're hearing everything in this episode recorded from. Um, but that track you just heard, though, there is a hardware recording up on YouTube. Um, so we'll link to that in the show notes. So Yeah, I believe it's actually by I'm a Track Man. Uh, oh, cool. Yeah, who directly you're talking off his, to. So, yeah. Yep, so uh, it'll, it'll be cool to hear that off direct hardware. So Yeah, excellent. 
Yeah, and I mean, there's a bunch of other great stuff out there too. You were mentioning before, like having other sounds in there that were maybe like a little distracting for demonstrative pur- purposes. Mm-hmm. Like I know there's a lot of multi-chip stuff out there where it'll be like FDS plus another expansion, and a lot of that stuff yeah. is it's actually amazing. Uh, but like you know, we're trying to demo the FDS audio, where it's like, ah, let's not yeah. play that because the listener's not going to know what's what because there's like eight million channels. I think that that was one of the reasons why uh, we left out the Hertz Devil example because it does use Salt and Soft bass, and obviously it's an amazing track. Um, all of his work is great. So yes, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, um, which I'll link to in the show here if you want to hear it. Yeah. It's oh, actually, ridiculous. yeah. Speaking of which, if there's more examples of modern, uh, you know, FDS tracks you like, multi-chip or not, you know, please uh, link them. So. Oh yeah, maybe there's yeah, some new stuff I haven't heard before. Definitely that'd be great. Leave a comment, you know, on the SoundCloud. Uh, that'd be awesome. So. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, so that about wraps up the main chunk of the episode. Um, you know, if you have any questions, comments, you know, again, please leave comments on the SoundCloud. Uh, that's the best way to reach us. And uh, so we're going to go over some comments that we got from our previous episode, uh, a couple episodes, actually, since we did that sort of uh, skipped week. So uh, so we have a comment here on the Zangir episode, which is the one we did last week um, from Vera Lovely. Um, and they say, uh, Sakuraba uh, reused these chords for tournament finals for Mario Tennis, referring to some of the chords that are kind of in there. And, you know, kind of talking about when I was mentioning that, uh, you know, uh, Sakuraba's uh, band and highbrow from Star Ocean 3. Sakuraba, and I, I kind of put this in the comment here, but it's worth noting that Sakuraba really does have like his own kind of particular motives. He really does love these like traumatic kind of building bass lines that kind of reach to a certain point. And he really does love uh, fully diminished chords. So he'll start to build like four chords in a row, then fully diminish down and then start building again, etc., etc. So that, I mean, I love his music and it's something that I, and again, Again, he's not musically trained. He, he didn't go through all of that. He's obviously a very good musician, but he, he never got the the, the the I mean, he never got the training at school or whatever. So um, for him to kind of pick up on that and kind of develop his own style uh, that's instantly recognizable, that is something that's actually musically complicated. Uh, it's just so amazing, and that's why he's a great, great, great uh, composer. Um, so I'm glad that you pointed that out, yeah, because those those chords are used very often in his work. Okay, so the next comment comes from J-Red on our Alberto Gonzalez episode. Uh, he says, all of your episodes have been excellent. Uh, thank you. Um, but I especially yeah, enjoyed thanks. this one. Uh, Alberto is one of the coolest video game musicians I've ever heard, and I discovered him because of Patrick's YouTube channel, Xplod2A03. So I really have a huge amount of respect for this podcast and eagerly look forward to new episodes. Uh, he said he also wanted to say congrats to APOC, that's you, Steve, uh, for getting yeah. first place on a few categories in the Winter Chip. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, he also enjoyed uh, Audi as a co-host, which is great, and he hopes he comes back in the future, which uh, I'm sure he will at some yeah, point. So I, I, that's... Yeah, it, it, he added a lot. That was that was really fun. Yeah, so. we didn't really talk that much about, like, I just, in the beginning of the episode, I said, like, oh, yeah, Audi's an old friend with, like, video game music. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't really mention that he's, like, one of the most knowledgeable people out there that I know um, when it comes to, like, he's worked with a lot of video game composers. Mm-hmm. Um, composers known specifically back from back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, he's just full of insight. He knows a, a lot of composers and, um, 
he's someone that you can pick his brain all day. Uh, so talking to him is fantastic. We always learn something new from him. Now, even just some of the offline conversations we had while we were recording the episode were just, it was gold. Like I found, I learned more in two hours than I've learned yeah. reading the internet for a very long time about some of these composers. Yeah. So he's, it's an amazing, it's just amazing to have him and you know, he's welcome back anytime. No, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, uh, also in the Alberto Gonzalez episode, we kind of on the spot blanked about, uh, you know, American composers that we could think of. Yeah. Um, you know, and so like, you know, we mentioned for obviously, <clears throat> and you know, we didn't, we weren't really able to find many Game Boy composers. Uh, for, and like, I, I couldn't think of any, I still really can't, right. um, but I, I, you know, there is the, the, the guys who worked on uh, Maniac Mansion. Yeah. For the um, NES. Would, yeah. For the NES. Yeah. So that'd be George, the fat man Sanger. Um, who worked on that? Uh, I also think it was Michael Land who worked on that as well. It was, was, I think there was, and David Warhol was the, the David Warhol do the sound for that? I believe. Yes. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, yeah David Warhol. Yeah. That's someone. Uh... Yeah, that's someone. I, you know, he's he's had his hand in a lot of different things, doing the uh, the sound, uh, actual sound programming. Uh, that's a name that I'm, you know, is him and uh, George are two people that I'm, I'm kind of sad that I forgot. Right. <laughs> No, yeah, like, no, totally, totally. Yeah, yeah that's uh, actually next week's episode is going to be all about Maniac Mansion, so we will re- redeem ourselves. It's something I wanted to do anyways. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, no, it, it they did some really great work too, uh, and I think you know it'll be really cool to highlight, um, you know, the kind of rare uh, U.S. based uh, composition team from there. Yeah, uh, you know, that are working on like the old the older tech. Um, some of the other guys I could think of too were Dan Forden from uh, the Mortal Kombat series, Dan Toasty Forden, if you will. Oh, okay. Yeah, and uh, Howard Drosten's another guy. Um, I know that he handled a lot of the Sega stuff. Um, I know he did Sonic Spinball, which is a great game, and I know he handled some of the localization uh, and help with uh, Sonic Three and all other sound effects, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but other than that, I, I really couldn't think of anyone off the top of my head. Uh, without digging and there's not actually like and this is an interesting point yeah, altogether there's not actually like a database that tells you american composers from this era oh that's fine um, yeah because there's there's plenty now yeah um so that would be something interesting if anyone knows where there is like a big list of guys who did this that would be really cool to look at because i'm sure we're missing like really talented people that are right. so obvious and i feel really stupid that, that i don't know them yeah yeah, it's just there were so many more. When you go back to this older era and some of the certain platforms we're talking about, there's just mm-hmm. it's so many. It's like mostly Japanese composers, and um, yeah. the rest are European, <laughs> pretty yeah. much. You know, so it's it's funny like trying to find the uh, the Americans in the group. So, so actually, I just had a question. So, when you played back the Zangir soundtrack, what was going on with that bass in that one thing? Was it messed up or like, is that just what it actually sounds like? Uh, I think that's what it actually sounds like, but it could be messed up originally, though. I don't know. Actually, I mean, I don't have hardware recording to compare it to, but that's, yeah. that's how it plays in the um, VGM file. So that, it's so weird. It, it sounds like it's wrong or something. Um, anyway, sorry. I was just I was just wondering about that. And then uh, Hunretro Geek, of course, caught it. Oh, cool. Oh, so we have another comment from Pingo Simon uh, in the Alberto Gonzalez episode, mm-hmm. and he says, uh, "Audi." Man, Akumu's NSF slash SPC slash GBS archives really boosted the scene from where I saw it. Before him, I had Zofar.net, which is cool, but not nearly as comprehensive. And now a lot of people are using gamemusic.multimedia.cx. Again, not as comprehensive and no option to export as audio. Uh, so it's for some clarification, so 
whenever we're like digging through soundtracks, we're digging through like ripped versions of the audio that you can play like in a sound emulator. And there isn't a lot of consistency on like, there isn't like the main archive, like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there are for certain platforms. Um, but there was a time where the NSF, the Nintendo music archive was really outdated and Audi made one. It was called uh, Kuma's NSF archive. And for a time, that was the leading one. And eventually it became too much work to maintain. And, you know, he had new ventures to take on. So, mm-hmm. um, but it, it's still archived somewhere, I believe. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's something we failed to mention. Our previous guest was like uh, a very helpful person <laughs> in making these files available and, you know, making them easy to find, I should say. So, and so uh, the best NSF archive, I believe, currently isn't really hosted anywhere yet, but it's being built up. I mean, you can you can get the RAR file or zipper, however it's compressed from the guy. No problem. He put he shares that link publicly. Um, but yeah, it's hosted by Mr. Norbert, nineteen ninety four, and uh, yeah, I think that's like one of the more up to date ones. And he personally rips and uh, also corrects like broken NSF files and stuff like that. So um, there's like stuff in there that he's fixed and patched up too. So that's cool. Yeah, I listen to. Uh, it's funny because I. It's a name I recognize because I, I listen to a lot of files off YouTube or just like soundtracks off YouTube when I'm at work. So it's usually his. Yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> so. yeah. He's he's a he's one of those. When you're looking up old video game music, that's one of the names you're going to come across. And yeah, and of course yours. So yeah, it's I never really talked about that on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I used to have a channel. It's technically still up. Uh, Explod two a zero three. I wish I had the foresight to like call it retro game audio or something that's like or just like maybe a different channel for each platform or something rather than something kind of like a bunch of random letters and uh, numbers. But yeah. Um, yeah. So it, it's, it became too much work. I was like very, uh, I had like a lot of like a specific things I did in my routine for uploading video game music. Mm-hmm. It just became very tedious, you know, like I would, uh, when I uploaded all the tracks, I would put annotated links in there. Yeah. I've seen them. And yeah. like, that was so <laughs> time consuming. Cause it's like, Sure, I, I could do a playlist, and I did, but my mindset was, like, if you discover, like, oh, I really want to look up the moon theme from DuckTales, like, you don't look for a playlist, you just find the track by itself. And mm-hmm. I wanted that encouragement to be, like, oh, not only did you find this one track, but the actually the entire soundtrack is here. Um, because, no, you know, because yeah. a lot of people would upload, like, just their favorite songs, and I wanted to be, like, a more comprehensive kind of thing. It's like, oh, if you find this song uploaded by me, it means the whole thing's there. So, like, I, I did a lot of little tricks. And, like, I was also anal retentive about, like, fade-outs in the songs. Like, mm-hmm. I wouldn't sample it from an NSF player and, like, use an automated fade. Like, I wanted it to sound nice. So, it's like... I, I basically, I put way too much work into it, and it was really dumb. <laughs> well, I mean, I my entire original blog was based off of the fact that I found your... I was trying to listen to Castlevania 3's music, and you had the button that you annotated in there to go to the Japanese version, which had a different soundtrack. And then I remember being like, what the hell is this? Why is this a different soundtrack? And, I mean, that started pretty much everything I do in music. (laughs) So years ago, um, you know, you planted that seed. I mean, I started doing my blog specifically because of that. Um, And so, I mean, mean, if you – I don't know if you've looked at my blog – lately but i mean most of the links i have on there are your original channels so that's great wow thank you (laughs) yeah i forgot to mention i guess it would be relevant to this episode because i have the um castlevania 2 soundtrack up there and as you're playing it there's an annotated button to switch back and forth between the cartridge version of the soundtrack and the uh fds version so so all all of that was really useful really so you put a lot of work into it but it's not like people didn't know what it was so yeah thank you thank you yeah um yeah i i have plans to well no Scratch that. I don't have any plans to really get involved in that channel again, but <laughs> yeah, I do want to upload the Otaki soundtrack in some way. 
Um, mm-hmm. Because, again, we mentioned it makes music as you play the game, so there isn't really an official soundtrack out there, but I want to find some way, like maybe take the tool assisted run, but anytime mm-hmm. there's like a, an errant sound effect, like a pulse wave thing, like get rid of it. Um, so I'm going to find some way to p- put it together. But yeah, I would like to have the Otaki soundtrack up on YouTube because uh, yeah, pretty, no one has it. That would be pretty cool. So. Yeah. So what's really cool is on our Alberto Gonzalez episode that Alberto Gonzalez responded to us and they wrote some things on here, which is really neat. Yeah. Um, so he wrote here, um, there's half a picture of my SNES development kit, uh, system here. Um, you can Google for S, uh, SNES emulator SE to find more out about this machine. Yeah. And this is in response to like, I interviewed him a long time ago and I was excited to learn that, um, he had this development kit for the Super Nintendo that let you control uh, via MIDI the sound mm-hmm. card of the yeah. Super Nintendo. I found that interesting because, you know, again, people today really like to interface with the older consoles, you know, have them play back, you know, original music or whatever. And it's yeah. like, oh, wow, you know, I've never seen like a MIDI interface for the Super Nintendo, certainly not one from the early 90s, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, but apparently that's been around this whole time. But so he links, uh, you know, and I mentioned that like, it's not well known. You can't even find a picture of the thing. Well, it turns out I was wrong. Uh, it's become a little bit more well known recently. Still a very <laughs> obscure item. Uh, yeah, he links the image to it, and it's this crazy device, the SNES Emulator SE. Yeah, it's like this. It's like this tall-looking box or tower, but it's very official-looking. It says like Super NES Emulator SE, and it has like the Super Famicom like logo on it and everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it goes for thousands upon thousands of dollars whenever it turns up. Uh, online, which is in, in very rarely does that happen. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's sold for like over $15,000, this device. Jeez. And there's a picture of like Alberto Gonzalez, like he's sitting like at a computer, like next to it from a long time ago. I, you know, I'm, I wonder if he hopes that, I, I wonder if he like wishes he stole it or something. <laughs> 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 um, but yeah, I mean, it's just really cool to see that. And, uh, he also said that his didn't work very well though, and he spent like a lot of time um, turning it on and off again until to get it to work. And classic troubleshooting. And, it's pretty funny. And he said, but it was awesome though because he could access the SP seven hundred memory um, and rip the soundtracks of many of his favorite Super Nintendo games. So that means back in the day, he had this device and he was ripping Super Nintendo soundtracks, uh, like not from their audio but from their data even. Man, that's awesome. Yeah, that's really really cool. Uh, So it is time for Name That Game. Uh, Let's listen to the previous track we had. And that was correctly identified by Scoobly on SoundCloud. Uh, they said that they could spot Hitoshi Sakimoto's Genesis style from a mile away. This is very Tech's ruined area. Uh, yeah, good job identifying it. Yeah, hey, I, w- job. I wasn't sure if that would be a little too obscure. It was for um, Sega Mega Drive specifically. It was not like a multi-region game. It didn't come out for the Sega Genesis. Yeah. And I also didn't pick like the title or first level. I think that's like the level three theme or something. Um, but yeah, he identified that, I think within a couple hours of the episode going up. Um, so good job. I, I, we have more listeners now, I think who are really good at this. Um, so Steve, uh, 
do you want to step it up? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I think I think it's time to uh, turn up the difficulty a little bit. All right, best of luck everyone with that. Hopefully you can name that game. So that wraps things up here about the Famicom Disk System. Patrick, do you have a song of the week? Uh, so this is from a game called Famicom Mukashi Banashi Shin Onigashima. It's uh, more music by Koji Kondo for the Famicom Disk System. And yeah, I just thought it was a nice track. So uh, we'll close off the episode with it. And uh, thank you for listening to Retro Game Audio.